Hey, good evening, CFC family and guests, and Merry Christmas to you all. If you have your Bible uh, or pull out your smartphone, we will be in Matthew chapter 2 for our Christmas sermon and devotion. Matthew chapter 2. And if uh, you yourself need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of, uh, one of our family members in here will hand you a Bible. So Matthew chapter 2. And if you are able, I invite you to stand up and I will read the text and then... Uh, I will pray. So please stand up in reverence of God's word. So again, I will read the text and then I'll pray. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And then, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather in this place this evening to celebrate, to rejoice the birth of your King, our King, Jesus of Nazareth. And Father, as we stand here, we don't quite really know the the depth of 
what his entering into human history means. So we pray, I pray right now during this time as we look in this chapter that you would make clear what it means that you sent your son, the son, our Lord, to, to earth. And I know that, Father, today being Christmas Eve, there is a lot on our mind, family, itineraries, agendas to get taken care of, presents to be wrapped, all these things. I pray right now that we would pause our minds, that by your Spirit you would calm our hearts um, to hear from you. Because what we commemorate tonight is not just some religious holiday or tradition, but we commemorate, remember, and celebrate the birth of the King. And so as we listen from you, speak and move our hearts so that we may worship. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is born? What kind of king are we commemorating this morning? Uh, or this evening, sorry. So used to Sunday mornings, this evening. This, this is the question that Matthew is asking us. And he's wanting to answer that. What kind of king is born? We know this in the build-up to chapter 1. Chapter 1 begins, if you turn your eyes to 1-1, begins with a genealogy of Jesus. The very first words are, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, David was the greatest king in Israel's history, and it was to David that God gave the promise that you will always have an heir on, your th- on the throne. There will n- you will never lack an heir on the throne. So when Matthew introduces his gospel saying the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, he's alluding to this imagery of always David always having an heir on the throne. The genealogy itself, while confusing, suggests royalty. It's, it's artificially arranged into three fourteens. You have the first 14 from Abraham to David, the, the middle 14 from David to the exile, and the last 14 from the exile to the birth of Jesus. Now the reason why Matthew includes this is because the number 14 is code for the name of David. Uh, the, the Hebrew spelling of David consists of three letters, and if you were to uh, add the numbers up of where the letters are in their alphabet, it'd be 14. And so we see not only the genealogy beginning with the son of David, we see this 14. It's as if Matthew is declaring, Jesus is king. There's a king coming right now. He shouts this, Jesus is king. He's the Davidic king. He's the heir of David. And, and then the rest of chapter 1 unpacks exactly how this king was born, conceived by the Spirit. So with this, this anticipation of Jesus as king, we as readers are left asking, what kind of king is Jesus? Is he a king that can be trusted? Is he a king that should be worshipped? And then in this passage, what we just read in chapter 2 Matthew begins answering these questions. And I, and I want to highlight four aspects of what kind of King Jesus is in this text. Uh, the first aspect is that Jesus is a king that was not received as a king. He was a king that was not received as a king. Uh, you know, throughout human history, uh, the birth of a king, the birth of royalty, was generally a cause of great celebration. 
We don't need to look far for this. If you recall when Prince William and Kate Middleton announced that they were pregnant, uh, the British public and some over here in in America were just ecstatic. There's this baby that's about to be born, a royal baby. And so we, the news coverage, the media, the tabloids are all covering every stage of the pregnancy, wondering whether or not it was going to be a boy or a girl, what's the name of this child going to be. There was great anticipation and excitement. No less was true for Roman emperors. Whenever a prince or princess was born, there was always excitement in the city, great jubilation, partying, dancing. Is this what happened at Jesus' birth? Was there a crowd of Jews waiting to see Jesus? How did the public receive him? What we read is the opposite response of what a king deserves. If you look at verses 1 through 2, we're in chapter 2 now, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew immediately tells us that the Jewish public didn't even take notice that their king was born. Didn't even take notice. There were no priests, there were no scribes, no religious leaders, no Jewish officials coming out to Bethlehem, lining up in lines to see this king. What do we see instead? We see a group of magi. The ESV translates it wise men. We see a group of magi coming to Jerusalem to seek Jesus. Uh, Magi were Gentiles. They were pagan Gentiles, foreigners of non-Jewish descent, uh, very likely from the east, either Babylon or Persia. Uh, And these men were interested in dreams, astrology, and magic. And and these are the men seeking the child. They're not Jews seeking Jesus. It's these magi. And so when the Magi come into Jerusalem, how then do the Jewish leaders and public respond? Look at verse 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. When King Herod hears this ruckus about these Magi coming into Jerusalem, he's troubled. He's startled because this means that there's a rival to his throne. For Herod, there can't be two kings. And so any mention of another king worries Herod. Uh, We we see his angst and concern in verse 4. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, all the religious leaders, and says, where is this king, your Messiah, where is he to be born? It's an image of Herod frantically gathering around, worried, what's happening? I need the 411. It's a sad image because we have here a picture of the royal family, the active royal family in Jerusalem, not excited about the birth of a king, but worried. And it's also ironic because it's not just the royal family who doesn't even know, it's the religious leaders. It's these religious leaders who, the, who themselves knew where this Messiah was to be born. They knew where this Davidic king was to be born. Look at verse 5 and 6. And the scribes tell Herod, he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. The religious leaders knew, yet they're not standing in line. 
Worse still, worse still, we have Herod agitated by the birth of this child. And, and this is not good news because Herod is not a compassionate king. In fact, Herod was known for quickly silencing any perceived threats to his kingdom. He killed many close associates. He killed his wife. He killed two of his favorite sons, at least two of his sons. This man is not to be messed with. So he's a paranoid king who's afraid and is ready to put to death any perceived threats. And this is why Jerusalem is troubled. Look at the end of verse 3 again. When Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem's astir because they know King Herod is about to bring his wrath. They're scared because Herod is going to bring his military force and stop anything that comes in his way. So they're troubled. The pictures of families coming into the house being scared. They know Herod is going to respond with violence. So in response to the news of the birth of the king, Herod deceives the Magi in order to catch the child. Uh, Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Herod then sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so I too may come bow down before him. He tricks the Magi so that he can discover the whereabouts of this child, and then to ambush him. For what we see, what Matthew is clearly showing in these first few verses, is that Jesus is a king that was not received as a king. The second aspect we learn is that Jesus is a king who was born to be worshipped by Gentiles. Look at verses 9 through 11. After listening to the king, the Magi went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Then when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they brought treasures there. They opened up their treasure box and offered him gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These magi have traveled a long distance. And they've done this to pay homage to Jesus. Now, the star has been uh, a, a point of speculation for, for, the, for, the, for Christians throughout ages. Was it a supernova? Was it a comet? What is this star? What is this starry object? Uh, you know, Matthew doesn't care to tell us. He, he, he's not interested in the astronomical phenomenon that's taking place. Rather, what, what Matthew is hinting at is that this is a supernatural act happening. God is sovereignly orchestrating, directing the sky and the space to make known a king has arrived. This doesn't mean, though, that the star was like a GPS. This doesn't mean that the star was going across the sky, bouncing from place to place, leading the Magi. The star was simply over Bethlehem. And so the Magi come in, they start asking, is there any baby that's been born? They're going house to house. And then the next question you may be wondering is, how did these Magi know? How did these foreign Gentiles who don't have the Hebrew Scriptures know about this king. Again, Matthew doesn't explain this either. He simply tells us that it was, they deduced this based off of their astronomical calculations. Um, it was common in the ancient world for uh, things of the sky, things of space, for, for astronomical observations to be linked with king, to be linked with royalty. 
So it could be that these magi were all the way in Persia, Babylon, Babylon, I don't even know where, but they're there looking at the sky, they see this object, and they think, a king is born. We don't know. But the reason why Matthew highlights them in this story is to contrast them with the Jewish leaders. For you see, Gentiles, again, these foreigners, don't have the Hebrew Scriptures, don't know the one true God, don't know God's sovereign plan. It's them that's coming to Jesus. It's not the Jewish leaders, those who have the text, those who can study. It's not them. It's these pagan Gentiles. It is them who are seeking the child king. They are the ones who want to pay homage. They are the ones who want to welcome the Davidic king, the Jewish king. Look at verse 11. And when they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That is, they paid homage to him. Then they opened their treasures, and they brought out gifts with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, I don't necessarily think the Magi fully recognized that Jesus, who Jesus is and his role in God's plan. The Magi probably only know that Jesus is superior to them. And this is why they bring these incredibly expensive gifts. Incredibly expensive gifts. It's these gifts that probably financed uh, their journey from, from Judea to Egypt. And so these magi, these Gentiles, they come and pay homage to Jesus. And as they're doing this, we know, as the magi are bowing before Jesus, we as the readers know that there's more happening that the magi don't even recognize. The Magi think they're paying homage to an earthly Jewish king. They think that. But we as readers know they're paying homage to the king of kings. They're paying homage to the Davidic king who's come to save us. And what Matthew is highlighting here is that it's Gentiles who are worshiping. Jesus came not to be the Jewish king only. He came to be the king of the Gentiles. And we can notice this emphasis when we observe that Matthew, he's subtly alluding to Psalm 72. Uh, Psalm 72 is a psalm in which the writer is praying to God, asking God to protect the Israelite king, to exalt the Israelite king, to allow foreign nations to come and bow before the king. For our sake, we'll only read verses 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. What Matthew is doing is he's connecting the Magi with this psalm. Matthew sees the Magi functioning as these foreign leaders coming to pay homage to an Israelite king. But what Matthew does is takes it to a whole new level. It's not just any Israelite king. It's the king of kings. And this is good news for us. Because all of us who are not ethnic Jews, and that's probably the majority of us, we're Gentiles. Jesus is our king. He came to be our king. That's good news. He's not just the king of the Hebrews, of the Jews. So in summary, Matthew is declaring that Jesus is a king who was born to be worshipped by the Gentiles, by all peoples. As we continue in the story, we see also 
that Jesus is a king protected by God. Turn your eyes to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. God tells the Magi to leave in secrecy and they do so and, and, and once uh, and well before Herod realizes that he's been deceived and tricked by the Magi, God comes to Joseph in a dream and he says, you've, you've got to go. For Herod, this earthly king who is easily agitated and is bothered by a child, he's, come to, he's coming for your child. Go. And God in his sovereignty, he provides the finances for this family to do this, this poor family to go to Egypt. And we see that with the gifts of the Magi. And so Joseph takes his family. They flee, to, they flee to Egypt. And what Matthew is revealing here is that God is protecting his Messiah. God will not allow harm to come upon Jesus. Not yet, at least. So God intervenes to protect. And we see this play out in the remaining verses. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years, or two years old or under. Herod, furious that he's been tricked, he instigates this violence upon a village in Bethlehem. He says, kill all boys two years and younger. Now Bethlehem was not a big, big village. Uh, there was probably a dozen or so boys who were killed. But nevertheless, that's a dozen families who have been distraught with injustice. These poor families had their children ripped from them and killed, and, and there would have been a lot of screaming and weeping. There would have been a lot of lights turned on, flickered in the night when, when neighbors are hearing neighbors their neighbors crying. And, but God, God protects this child because this child came to earth to fulfill God's plan. This is why Jesus is protected right here. This is why this child is protected because this child has a plan. He will die, not yet. This child has to live, to grow, to mature because this child will be the Davidic king who will die for his people. We sang the song earlier. So what we learn, and, and, and even we didn't get to read this, the rest of chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2 even highlights further how God protects this king. No harm can come to him because he has a plan. This child has to fulfill a plan. So the three aspects thus far is that Jesus is a king who was not received as a king. He's a king who was born to be worshipped by Gentiles. And he's a king that is protected by God. The last aspect I want to draw attention to is that Jesus is the king that restores people to God. We're, we're given this hint from verse 18. If you'll turn to verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What Matthew's doing right here is he quotes Jeremiah 31.15 and he connects this verse from Jeremiah to the weeping and screaming in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31.15 portrays the mourning of, of exile. Exile is about to happen for Israel, and so Jeremiah 31.15 is, is anticipating this exile, and so the women are crying. Rachel, who epitomizes the mother of Israel, we see her crying and weeping because Israel is about to be deported, removed from their homeland. But what's interesting, though, is that if we were to spend some time looking at Jeremiah 31, we would see that Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope. The setting for this verse that Matthew quotes is in a, a, a chapter of hope. It's a chapter in which God tells Israel that he's going to save them. It's a chapter in which God tells Israel he's going to restore them to himself. And so while Israel's exile came about by their sin, God is going to be gracious. He's going to still rescue this people. And so what Matthew does in quoting this passage in Jeremiah 31.15, what he's doing is he's connecting the weeping that took place in Israel's history right before they're exiled to Bethlehem's weeping. He's saying this same weeping's taking place. But then he intensifies it because the promises in Jeremiah 31, he's saying, are taking place right here. The promises that God made to his people saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to restore you, bring you back to myself. I'm going to make you a new covenant with you. Matthew's saying, Jesus is fulfilling this. So despite the tears and heartache that occurred in Bethlehem, there is hope because the Messiah, the child King Jesus, has escaped Herod. There is hope because this child will grow up into a man and he will bear the punishments of sin. The sin that put us, humanity, in, in opposition with God. This child will grow up to bear the condemnation of our disobedience. And this is why the child is given the name Jesus. If you turn the page to Matthew 121, when the angel is speaking to Joseph, he tells Joseph, Matthew 121, The angel speaking here, she, that is Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is going to grow up to save his people from their sins, and in doing so, restore people to God. And because sin is done away with in Jesus, we can be restored to God by faith. You know, Matthew is subtle in revealing this, but what he is doing is he's showing that this child king is, going, is born to restore people to God. So in conclusion, I want, to ask the, I want to ask the same questions. What kind of king is Jesus? Is he a king that can be trusted? Is he a king that should be worshipped? And what Matthew does is he responds with a resounding yes Yes, Jesus can be trusted. Yes, Jesus should be worshipped. So what is your response? What is your response to this child king? What is your response to the story of Jesus' life and birth? How do you respond? I ask this question because this is the question Matthew is 
asking himself. He's confronting us with this. How will you respond to this story? So I ask you again, this time more personally, is Jesus, is he only a king in, in story? Is he only the type of king that we bring up at this time of year so that we can have warm fuzzies and feel good about ourselves? Is he a king in story alone? Do we just pay lip service to it? Or do you believe that he was really born? That Jesus was tangibly, physically born in an obscure village in Judea? I ask this because Jesus came to be king of your life. So will you bow down to him? Will you bow down to this king? He, he beckons you. He calls you. He invites you to embrace him. And if you believe in him, he will embrace you. So what kind of king is he? Let me ask another set of questions that I think may be relevant to some people in here, and it's this. Do you respond to this child king as Herod did? Is any mention of Jesus as king agitate your heart because you don't want a king? Are you confronted that in order to recognize Jesus as a king, you have to bow down? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your life? And if you do, I, I want to encourage you to investigate who this child is some more. Spend more time this Christmas Tonight, tomorrow, next few days, investigating who is this person? Because Jesus is king. And the only appropriate response to Jesus is a response of trust and worship. And that's why the Magi exist in this story, is to model this. Jesus is worthy to be trusted because he restores people to God. Jesus is worthy to be trusted and worshiped because he is not like the kings and rulers of this world. Just think about that. I, I was on a, on, a, on a plane recently, and I was talking with uh, this young woman uh, who was sitting next to me, and, I, and she found out I was a pastor. Um, she asked, so are you going to be preaching Christmas Eve? And I said, yeah. She asked, what are you going to be preaching on? I said, preaching on Matthew 2, talking about Jesus as king. And she's like, no, I like Jesus, but he's not king. Because king, she was saying, kings mean he's different. He's of a higher class. He can't relate to me. And as I listened to her, I, I told her, do, do you know, can I tell you what the Bible says? Um, Jesus wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born on a king-sized bed. He wasn't born with trumpets and horns and stallions riding through the streets. No, no. Jesus was born in an obscure village in an unimportant part of the Roman Empire. He was born in a hotel parking lot because no one would open up their room to a pregnant woman. No, no, no. He's a king that knows suffering. He's a king that only knows pain. This means that Jesus isn't a king who only knows comfort and riches. No, he's a king acquainted with grief and sorrow and pain. That's his world. And as I was telling her this, you, you could almost see a change in her disposition, as if she'd never heard of that. 
And, that, and that's what I want to tell you. Jesus is a king who identifies with suffering. That's what's so incredible about, about this gospel, about Christianity. Is that we have a king who came from heaven to earth, not to be served, but to serve. We have a king who identifies with injustice, who identifies with our sorrows. And so I want to tell you this. If you're suffering with pain, physical, mental ailments, Jesus knows you're suffering. If you're agonizing over broken relationships, whether with your spouse, whether children or parents, Jesus knows you're suffering. He knows the suffering of African mothers whose children are ripped before them. He knows their suffering. He knows the pain of women who are abducted in in India, given into the sex trade industry. He knows their suffering because he is a king of suffering. He's a humble king. And so if you find yourself in a place needing a king like this, come to him by faith. He's inviting you to embrace him, to trust in him. Because there will be a day when this king comes back and restores everything. No more pain, no more crying, no more stillborn babies, no more cancer, no more broken relationships, no more sin. That's why this king came. He's a humble king. And he's a king worthy to be trusted. And he's a king worthy to be worshipped. And so as we continue with tonight, tomorrow, as you continue, as you're opening up your gifts, give thanks to God. Yes, for the gifts, but mainly because the Christ child has come. And so at this moment, we are going to continue in our worship of this king by lighting some candles. So I invite the ushers to come forth. And we do this exercise not because we want some religious practice or custom to do, but we do this exercise because we're we're symbolizing light. Light and darkness. We're going to turn off the lights here, and we want to symbolize how Jesus came into this world as light to restore the world. And so we're going to pass it from person to person, and... As you're receiving it, I encourage you, whoever has the, the fire on their candle, if you don't have it, just t- uh, turn your candle into the, into the flame. Uh, parents, it's your discretion if you want your children handling it. Um, but we're going we're gonna to worship God this way.